0: Viewer discretion is advised. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Airport Baggage Handler. Mr. Airport Baggage Handler. Why just set a bag down when you can throw it, kick it, or simply ignore it SFO, ORD, LAX the complex airport codes are almost unsolvable but that's okay because thanks to you everything's going to Tulsa that's Oklahoma. when comforting a traveler about a lost bag or a treasured family pet you need only remember three simple words airline not responsible. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh king of the carousels. You give us all a reason to carry on. Bud Light beer, as it yeah, That's single. How's it going in here? You find any good toys? Not good. No, actually. Let's ask this guy. Excuse me, sir. Hi. Uh, what is the hottest selling toy item that you have in this store right now? Actually, the hottest selling item right now is Redman the Robot. Are you
1: serious? Redmond mm-hmm. the Robot? That's what the kids are into? Shit don't change! Oh, shit don't <laughs> change!
0: We'll take one rub in the Robot, please. Or sold out. The... We're sold out? Mm. Yeah, but it's Christmas Eve, dude. You're not gonna sell out on Christmas Eve, right? There were a lot of people here today. Yeah, but it's Christmas Eve. You no, would stock up. What so kind of I'm business model it. is I that? Mean, just run and go get us one of the special reserve toys I know you got back there. I'm, I'm being very serious right now. We don't have any. I <laughs> so, okay, so hold on a second. You're telling me that if. Mike Schmidt were to walk in here right now and say, hey, get me a Redman the Robot. You'd say, I'm sorry, we're all out. We're sold out, Mike. Who's Mike Schmidt? Who's Mike Schmidt? Bro, have some respect I, him, man.
1: What are you talking about? I don't know who
0: Mike Schmidt is. You've never heard of
1: Mike Schmidt. All right, easy, dude. Don't lose 12-time your 12-time cool. All-Star, three-time baseball MVP. Maybe he
0: doesn't know. I him. don't buy it for one second, dude. Yeah, but maybe he's never... He's, he's the out. all-time leading home run hitter, No, he's dude. not
1: the all-time leading home run well, for hitters. white guys, He's he is. not even for white guys. Babe Ruth's got You're going to tell me you don't know who
0: Vaughn Hayes is. Or dude, Steve bedrock Petrosian. I don't maybe buy it, Maybe he's not dude. a baseball fan, man. He won't You got one for Von Hayes? Dude, nobody knows who Von Hayes is. Man, relax. Long drive to left field. He buried it. He buried it way back. Out of here. Home run. Mike Schmidt puts the Phillies up six to four. Oh, what a drive by Schmidt. Unbelievable. Robinson-Gearing Studio Complex in straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina. The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson.
1: Never moving slow-mo Welcome to my dog Yo, those other pods are so-so I'm chill like bro Yo, focus like a GoPro ripping up this promo Check out the scoreboard Please, I'm no, no. going, no-no going, it's going, it's going. Yo, it's gone Your heart just stop. Cause Jake got strong and mighty Undefeated, I mean it Pull up the pod, scroll it down And read it Written, produced, directed, and mixed Don't on your lips And Ozzie Smith backflips Pick a tip, any tip Get onto it I got ridiculous pods Without forcing it You sit at home crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that makes them with the groove to my ears, wanna listen at a little cut. Ain't a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now I'ma stack em up. You think another white rat bag, but this ain't no act jack. My hobbies to rhyme up and be trying to be butt, but that about time I come out call the show. BKP 11, turn it out, yo. Name, take the snake, border 71. date you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a little bit. And that's why I collect ballplayers in their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the Incredible, the Pod Animal Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Baldy's Island, South Kakalaki. Half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's crackin' C-Meds? What's juicy, you priest? Man, I got lost on that bar a little bit there, but th- there you go. No edit, no dubs, one take snake. Nah, what, 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 what? Wow. Welcome to my dojo for another week of BKP, where every week we take a baseball topic, like maybe a player, some indelible moment worth immortalizing, could be the history of a specific stadium, or maybe something in reference to pop culture, music, or film, could be any one of the thousands of characters in the game's history that appeals to all of our, you know, seamen, geeky nature. I take these topics, and I break them down, regurgitate them to you, and then add it to our collection. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. And I've been doing this over and over for the past 19 months in this format. And during that time, we have covered over 160 years of baseball through these topics. And... I'm proud to acknowledge this week's pod will be the 100th show in the Backwards K pod catalog. And I don't want to take a lot of time patting myself on the back because, folks, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm just getting in the fast lane and asserting my position. So I'm proud of 100. But I have so much more to give. And I have the ambitious eyes and heart to take this show higher and higher. But, I would like to pat this audience on the back and say thank you. I am truly living my dream, working for and entertaining this group of CMEDs. And I get messages all the time from people all over the world thanking me. And that, that, that humbles me. Because from my perspective... I truly wish I could thank all of you individually. You're you're doing a service for me. Not the other way around. I, I need you way more than you need me at the end of the day. I'm a narcissist artist who needs his art to be recognized. Like, I need that. Now, I've been doing versions of this show for years inside of my head. Ever since I can remember. All I ever wanted to do since I realized I couldn't hit the curb was broadcast baseball talk. And this audience has changed me. I had no purpose before this show. I'm a better man, a better person because of each and every one of you. I'm a better father. I'm a totally different person than the one you hear on the Clemente pod back in episode one. The show has evolved. And I've grown so much in 19 months. I'm more assertive. I know what I want in life. And I'm not ashamed when I tell someone now I have a podcast I do every week and they look at me quizzically. Now why the hell should I be ashamed? I have a crazy fan base in over 35 countries around the world. They're my anchor. I'm motivated by all the people who doubted me or rejected me. I'm learning this competitive business of trial and error. But I'm making my dreams come true. And, And that doesn't happen if... I don't have you to motivate me. If I have learned anything. In my 50 plus years of. Walking on this planet. Life is about moments. And because of this audience. I intend on capturing mine. And you're all coming with me. So buckle up buttercup. And enjoy the ride. Now. With that being said, let's get this show on the road. We got more ground to cover this week than Andrew Jones at Fulton County Stadium. I know I said last week we would crunch the NL playoff picture this week, but I couldn't go without acknowledging the 100-show milestone. So, look, here's the deal. Uh, Atlanta is the prohibitive favorite to win it all this year, even though the Braves are, well, their fans are getting a little antsy. They're watching their boys go on you auto-cruise to the postseason. The Brewers are in. The Dodgers are in. Uh, the, the wild card is a freaking mess. The Phils they looked shaky last week, but they've righted the ship, and they appear to be a lot for the number one NL wild card spot. The Snakes really let one go away from them yesterday out at the Bronx as they lose the series against the Yankees two games to one. The Cubs are trying to stabilize themselves, coming off a three-game sweep over the rocks. So now they're in a virtual time for spots two and three in the wild card hunt. Miami is within striking distance, as are the Reds to some some point. I mean they're like two and two point five out now. The Giants appear to be losing steam. And the surging Padres have won eight in a row. And and you know it's it's all about perception when you look at those two. You see the Giants and you think, boy, they're 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 out of it. And you look at the Padres who have won eight in a row. They were they were winning when I went on the air here. They might be on their way to nine in a row. But it's probably too late for the Fathers, honestly. So that leaves four teams Arizona, the North Siders, Queen City, and the Fish. And all those teams, they're no more than two and a half games out. They're trying to snatch two wildcard spots. And thankfully, this is the last week of the 2023 season. And by the next show, we should have a clear vision of where we're headed into the post. So all you got to know is there are three teams uh, in the A.L. Toronto, Houston, Seattle, all vying for two spots with Toronto in control of their own destiny with the Yankees and the Rays for the final week. And these four teams are battling it out for two spots uh, in the NL. Uh, The ones that I just told you about, the Fish, the Reds, the Snakes, and the Cubs. And to some extent, I guess you can say the Giants and uh, Pods, they're not quite out of it. Although, you know, uh, if the Giants lose this series to the Padres, it, it's it's pretty much over for them. So, in other words, it's a freaking mess. So stay tuned. So I see the catcher is ready to throw down. The umpire has called play ball. And they're throwing that bill around the infield if I can get you guys to clear the platform, kiss your loved ones goodbye, load up our BKP time travel choo-choo as I call all aboard. Uh And I'm going to set our time and destination for September 27th, 1949 for the birth and rise of arguably the greatest all-around third baseman who ever lived. I'm talking Michael... Jack Schmidt. By the time Mike Schmidt hung up his cleats for good during the 1990 season, he was regarded as arguably the greatest all-around third baseman in the history of the game. And even as a die-hard Orioles fan who would never, never take any third baseman in the history of the game defensively over Brooks... I am want to concur with this belief when it comes to evaluating the all-time greats at the hot corner. Uh, Smitty is certainly the best all-round third baseman I've ever seen in my life. A few players may have been better than him defensively, and even fewer guys on par with his stick, but at the end of the day... I'm not so sure there's ever been a third baseman who was the complete package offensively and defensively like Schmidt. I mean, you know, you're looking at guys like Beltre, Arenado, Machado early in their careers. I mean, Mike Schmidt was just sick. And no player in the majors hit more home runs during the 80s. But number 20 was never a one-dimensional offensive threat. He could work hard on cutting down his strikeouts as his career progressed and he was apt to steal a base or two when the game called for it and in the field he mastered the rock hard artificial surface of Veterans Field displaying incredible footwork, great range lightning fast reflexes above average arm and a quick computer like brain and he would charge down that third baseline, fielding bunts, barehanded to nip runners by a step at first. And like all above average defenders, Schmidt's metrics are favorable by the modern and traditional stats. He led all National League of third basemen in participating in double plays six times. Seven times since leader four times leader in Range Factor, and seven times in UZR. And at the time of his retirement, Mikey was ranked seventh on the MLB all-time home run list. He was a three-time NL MVP, 12-time All-Star, 10-time Gold Club winner. Five years after his retirement, he was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. In his first year of eligibility. And here we are folks. Pulling up on September 27th. 1949. Coming out of that wormhole. Dayton Ohio. Where the Schmidt family. Lois and Jack. Have just been blessed by the birth of their newborn son. Michael Jack Schmidt. And this dude is going to change the position for eternity. In about 30 years from now. And set the bar for future third baseman's. To aspire to. Mike's parents were the owner and operators. Of the Phillips Aquatic Club. On the north side of Dayton. In its day it was the longest surviving operation. Of a series of aquatic clubs. Throughout Ohio. And it was founded by Lois' great grandfather. Charles Phillips. The couple also operated. Uh. Jack's drive That was on the grounds. Um. Uh, it was located at the corner of Leo and Kiowi Streets. And the two businesses became fixtures in the Dayton community. It was a popular destination for generations of Ohioans. Mike's older sister Sally and her husband ran the business until it closed in 2009. Mike always reminisces that his childhood was, well, it was nothing but swimming pools and ice cream. Well, Michael Jack was five years old. He climbed a tree in his backyard, and when he reached the top, he stretched his arm out to reach for a live electrical wire that had over 4,000 volts running through it. His mother, Lois, recounted in a 1974 interview that her son's heart stopped, and as he lost grip of the tree, he pounded down that tree, bouncing off nearly every fucking limb on the way, and he hit the ground hard enough to restart his, his ticker. Uh, He was very fortunate. As, you know, was the baseball universe in a true butterfly effect moment, right? To walk away with, you know, just minor burn marks on his legs after that accident. And he was always an excellent athlete. As one would assume whoever saw him play baseball. Schmitty was a three-port sports star at Dayton's Fairview High School. He developed a healthy print robbery with Steve Yeager, who were going to play catcher for the Dodgers. And even though the two were fierce competitors between the lines, the two developed a mutual respect for one another, and Michael Jack has said many times that Yeager was the greatest athlete he ever saw before two knee, knee surgeries ended his high school and football and basketball career. From the moment Mike got involved with sports, he becomes this legendary like gym rat in Dayton, Ohio. He was such a workaholic as just a teenager that his girlfriend at the time would tell her mom that she was going to go uh, hang out with Mike at the batting cages and her mother never worried about Smitty breaking his practice routine for hanky panky with her teenage daughter. He was that focused and everyone in the neighborhood knew it. He also picked up a love for golf at a young age. Ripping up the course at the Kitty Hawk Golf Center at Northeast Dayton. And a passion for the game he still carries today. As a switch hitting shortstop, he struggled his senior year, finishing with one home run and a 179 average. But he still made that freshman team at Ohio University as a walk-on. And he hit one homer with 260 batting average. He was also a walk-on for the OU basketball team. He survived the cuts to make the team, but he was never cleared to play by the doctors. The summer after his freshman season, that's a pivotal one for Smitty, while playing for the Parkmore Restaurant in Dayton's National Amateur Baseball Federation Summer League. He started at shortstop, gained confidence, and improved dramatically during the season. Of his 13 hits, six of them were dogs, which led the league Two were doubles, and he added a triple to his four singles. Meanwhile, back at OU, at the behest of his coach Bob Wren, he gave up switch hitting and focused on batting right-handed only. Wren, who was one of the uh, best collegiate coaches of his era, he also got Mike to improve his leg strength. The improvements to his skill set were immediately noticeable. He batted 312 his sophomore year with seven bombs, and as a junior and senior, his game again advanced to another level, batting 333 and 331 in those years, clobbering 10 home runs in each one of those uh, two seasons there. Both times, 10 home runs, with time for the Ohio Bobcats single season record, and Michael Jack's potential caught the eye of legendary Phillies coach Tony Lucadella, who had been following since high school. And Lucadella wanted to draft Schmidt with his first round. So, when Schmidt was available in the second round at number 30 overall, he convinced the Bills to pick up one slot behind Royals' future Hall of Famer, George Brett. I'm sorry, he was taking number number 30, which, wow. You know, talk about another butterfly effect moment. I mean, first of all... You get Schmidt at 30, which is crazy value for the production he would give back in his career, right? Brad at 29, it ain't too shabby either. And these guys were connected at the hip as that generation was moving on from the Brooksy, Ron Santo, Eddie Matthews era at the hot corner. And I genuinely wonder after learning that, where did Bilthy have a? All right, where 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 did the yeah where did filthy have George Brett ranked? was he next on the list if the Phillies had chosen Brett one the two teams would they have like flip-flop now these are without question the top third basements of their generation of their era and I've mentioned it in past pods sometimes baseball is like this living breathing entity Especially on draft night. The game has a way of pushing back and making sure the legends are where they're supposed to be. These were also two dominant teams, especially in the early eighties. And it is kind of fascinating for me to think of the possibility of Schmidty and Royals Blue and Brett enjoying some Gino's cheesecakes. Manny third at the vet. I mean, it just fascinates me. How those two were so linked to one another in the 80s. And it all began on draft night in 1971. But I digress. Mike signed with Filthy, who gave him a $32,500 bonus. And with his bonus baby money, he buys a Corvette Stingray. He drives it to the Philly Spring Training Camp to receive his orders. I must tell you that thirty-two thousand dollars and fi- thirty-two thousand five hundred dollars in nineteen seventy-one. It has the purchasing power of around quarter of a million dollars today in twenty twenty-three. His professional career for the Phillies began when he is penciled in for a game versus Double A Reading in Reading, Pennsylvania, on June seventeenth, nineteen seventy-one. While starting at shortstop for the Phillies. He hit the game-winning blast. Although the Phillies had planned to start Mike at single A, they instead assigned him to Ready. His transition to pro ball was not seamless, and it presented difficult challenges as he struggled to adapt to the pitching. He batted a lowly 211 with eight home runs, 66 strikeouts, and 268 at-bats, 74 games. Nonetheless, Philadelphia had high hopes that matched their confidence in Mike, and they promoted him to AAA Eugene Emeralds. Go Ducks. In 1972, it was his breakout season, that's all I meant, 291 with 26 big flies and 131 games played, to take some of the pressure off Smitty so he could concentrate on lowering his strikeout totals. Manager Andy Seminik moved him to second base. Despite a painful knee injury, Schmidt was promoted to the big club in a September call-up. And even though Philly's ace and future Hall of Famer Steve Carlton was well on his way to the Cy Young Award in 1972, Filthy was hands down the most pathetic team in the NL that year. With their postseason ambitions dashed by June, the Phillies' brain trust decided to evaluate the young Mike Schmidt, who was wearing number 22 at this time, and play him mostly third base. He struggles at the plate in his first taste of MLB pitching, striking out 15 times and 40 plate appearances. He did melt his first home run of his career when he dropped a two-run dong on the Expos pitcher Baylor Moore on September 16th to lead filthy to a 3-1 win. Following his debut 1972 season, the manager Paul Owens is kicked upstairs to serve a second time in the organization in a GM capacity. And Danny Ozark was hired to manage the ball club on the strength of his developmental program he used for the Los Angeles Dodgers before he got the gig with the Philly. Uh, The hope was that Danny would take these talented young players in Greg Leszczynski, Bob Boone, Larry Boa, and of course Mike Schmidt, molded them into professional baseball players. Schmidt was playing ball in Puerto Rico that winter when he received word that the Phillies had traded Don Money to the Brewers. And that opened up the hot quarter position for the young Schmidty, if he can beat out Cesar Tomar and a few of these other stiffs. And Mike gets off to a lackluster start in 1973 when he misses the first 10 games of the season with a dislocated shoulder. Because of the injury and his relatively inexperienced career of only a year and a half in the minors, he strikes out 136 times in 367 at-bats, finishes with a sub-Mendoza line batting average of 196. Owens and farm director Dallas Green are becoming impatient and they have it in their mind to send Mike back down for more seasoning. But... Danny Ozark saw a ball player with a high ceiling who hasn't nearly scratched the surface of who he is as a ball player. And he talks the two men into letting Mike learn from his craft on the pro level. And while Schmidt did show his power stroke with 18 home runs, including a walk-off dong versus Hall of Famer Bob Gibson in April, the highlights were a few and far between for Mike in the 1973 season. Ozarks constant meddling with the swing and his preponderance to keep talking in Schmidt's ear and frustrated Mike. And it began to eat away at his corroded confidence as he ended the year going oh, for 26. After the season, he again goes to Puerto Rico to ball out and this time he is managed by Bobby Wine who insisted that Schmidt didn't have to swing from his heels at every pitch and he, he should just let his Power and natural ability take over. He took Wine's advice to heart, and Schmidt realized his coach was 100% right. With his new easy swing, Mike quickly realized he could still hit the ball a country mile and keep a mechanically smooth swing to meet the ball out in front of the plate. In 1974, Michael Jack into spring training and a new, you know, he's a new man possessed to excel. Right before he left Ohio for camp, he marries his girlfriend, Donna Reitman. He comes in grounded, ready to show off his new swing from, uh, you know, the winter before in Puerto Rico. But once again, Ozark is in his ear, habitually fucking with his stance. And he suggests to Schmidt that he would like to see him use a stance like Nate Colbert of the San Diego Padres. Now, after tried it a few times, he tells Ozark that uh, he's not going to do that anymore. And if you want to demote me, that's fine. But I'm not giving up what brought me success this past winter. And Ozark is ready to oblige the young Schmidt and send him down. Thankfully, Coach Wine steps in and argues with Ozark about the merits of Mike's arguments. The manager would eventually acquies- acquiesce to his coach's word and Mike's commitment to sticking with what worked the past winter paid off as Michael Jack Schmidt arrives as a, genuine for- as a genuine force in the 1974 season. He gets selected to his first All-Star game as a reserve, due only to the fact that he wasn't on the ballot to be considered for the starting gig. He still struck out a lot, 138 times to be exact. But he led all the major leagues in home runs with 36, He finished 2nd in the NL with 116 ribs, batted 282, finished as a gold glove runner-up at 3rd to Doug Radar, and finished 6th in NL MVP voting. In today's statistical vernacular, he led both leagues in war for the year at 9.7, a full run more than runner-up Joe Morgan, who was a war machine in his career, even though he wouldn't know it till years later. Ironically, it was the highest single season wins a ball replacement Mike would ever register. At the same time, Filthy finished their season with an eighty and eighty two record, a nine win improvement from nineteen seventy three. So you can see here, folks, that Mikey with his nine point seven war. And the fact that the Bills had a nine-win improvement to their record is testament to what Schmidt meant to that team in 1974. By today's metrics, and the fact that win-loss records of a team carried weight in those days, you, you can make the argument that 1974, Mike would have placed higher than six for MVP voting here in 2023. And in general... Well, here's the sliding scale that I like to use when evaluating a player's season based on war. So, a war of eight or more in a season. That's an MVP quality season. A war of five or more is considered all-star quality. A war of two to five is starter quality. So, that means... One to two is a reserve caliber, and zero is of course replacement level. So with that in perspective in mind, check this out folks. Mike Schmidt's wins above replacement dipped below six point two only once in fourteen seasons from nineteen seventy-four to nineteen eighty-seven. And that was when he had a five point seven in nineteen eighty-four, which is still all-star caliber. And he went eight plus in war four times in his career during that span. In 1975, another mentor steps into Schmidt's bubble and becomes Batman to his Robin. The Phillies signed former team icon Dick Allen. Well aware of the all-times combustible nature of Philadelphia sports fans from his prior stint with the team during the 60s, Allen was always there to remind the rising superstar to not put too much pressure on himself after a lousy game or a loss. And Dick Allen's confidence and disposition was an unquantifiable measure for Schmidt that year as he again led the NL in home runs with 38 which was his first of three consecutive years hitting that total. And the team finished 10 games over with a record of 88-76, good enough for second place in the NL East, six and a half games behind the Keystone State rival Buckos out in the Berg. Besides the home runs that year, Schmidt remembers a campaign as one of frustration. His career-high 180 strikeouts was the most in baseball, and his batting average took 33 points to 249. And even with Dick Allen propping him and his confidence up during the season, he was bothered by the Bluebirds riding his ass. And against his better judgment, he began to tinker with his stance. He even tried a little transcendental meditation for a week, but nothing helped. In 1976, The young Phillies have arrived as maturing studs, and they win 101 games to snatch the NLE's crown and play in the post for the first time since the beloved 1950 WizKid team. In the first 15 games of the year, Michael Jack puts 12 baseballs into orbit. That includes a four-home run performance versus the Cubs at Wrigley Field on April 17th. The Phillies had fallen behind 12-1 early in that game, but they would come back for an eighteen to 16th, 10th inning victory powered by Schmidt's vulgar display of power. At that time, he was just the fourth player in the history of the game to drop four dogs. And after that game, Sports Illustrated Magazine put Mike on the cover for the first time. Here's Mike
0: Smith. He's playing. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. How about this? That's going to be a reverse pitch. And Mike Smith has drilled his fourth straight
1: home run. That is unbelievable. After that miraculous comeback, Filthy was damn near unbeatable, reeling up a 55-22 and 22 record from that point through the All-Star break. Philadelphia in the event was the site of the bicentennial year All-Star Game. Schmidt made the team. He was joined by teammates Bob Boone, Larry Bowen, Greg Lezinski, Lezinski, and Dave Cash for the honors. On September 26th, they clinched the NL East in Montreal in a game versus the Spose. But the thrill of the moment became somber, if not confrontational. When Schmitty joined Allen, Cash, and Gary Maddox for a separate celebration and Tug McGraw called the quartet out on it. Looking back, Schmidt said, you know, it just so happened my best friends on the team were black. Guys become friends because they have similar interests. Now, I've learned a lot from Allen and Maddox and I probably wouldn't do that as I got older and wiser. It wasn't a good scene as... A leader, Tug was right to bring it up. The postseason was a downer as the Big Red Machine of Cincinnati swept them out. Uh, they swept them aside in the NLCS. Mike was a beast in the series though. He's batting three oh eight with two doubles, two RBIs, but it wasn't nearly enough to challenge that machine. From a personal perspective, Schmidt's season was an unmitigated success. He was again the NL leader in dong. He finished third in MVP balloting. He won his first Gold Glove Award. He cut down on the K's and he raised his BA. During the offseason, he and Filthy would sit down and negotiate a six year deal worth $565,000 per season to keep him in the city of brotherly love. So, let's see here Uh, $3.4 million a year in 1977. Is worth around seventeen point two five million dollars today. So a six-year deal at seventeen twenty-five a year is about two point nine million dollars a year in the twenty twenty-three economy. And Schmidty rewards the franchise with a torrid start to the nineteen seventy-seven season. That sees him having twenty-six home runs at the All-Star break. His first half stats might have been even better if he hadn't fractured his finger in a brawl with the Pittsburgh Pirates early in the season. On July 8th, Bucko's starting pitcher, Bruce Keeson, he drills Mike in the ribs. After taking a few steps towards the chirping pitcher, Keeson challenges Schmidt to bring it. If he's got a problem, Mike accepts the challenge He charges the mound before Pittsburgh catcher Ed Ott tackles him from behind causing the injury to his finger. And while he continued to play well with the broken finger, it did hamper his power production, as he didn't lead to NL in home runs for the first time since 1973. And even without his usual prodigious home run totals, he led all NL position players with a 9.6 war and collected his second gold glove. The Phillies, as a team, would again make it to the post, but would fall again in the NLCS, this time to the Dodgers. Following their two NLEs crowns, the Phillies returned for the most part the same group of fellas from 1977. Ozark named Schmidt captain, and he gets off to a strong start before hitting a string of injuries, which led to a prolonged slump in his first disappointing season since his rookie year. For the first time since 1975, he does not make the All-Star team. As the face, he had taken his fair share of abuse from the fans, but 1978 was particularly grueling on Mike as he remembers it. He ended up with his lowest home run in RBI total since 1973. Nevertheless, he was the NL's second most valuable position player by war, and he did win his third Gold Glove Award. The Phillies again won the NL East, and again they would fall to the Dodgers in the NLCS in four games. After losing the playoffs for the third year, the Phillies were being branded as that team that could win the regular season but collapse in the playoffs, right? We've seen many of those before and many of the fans and local scribes began scapegoating Mike as the reason and a six-year contract this prompted Boa to stand before the local media one day and say that you know the players want to press the home fans so much that we're just not relaxed like we should be and I know for a fact Mike Schmidt isn't relaxed remember the Phillies offered him the money. They didn't put a gun to his head and demand him to accept it. And going into the 1978 season, the pressure was palpable for the Pills to get over that NLCS hump. On December 5th, 1978, they signed Pete Rose, who had been playing third base for the Reds the past five years, to hopefully be that final piece of the puzzle that is building you know, a major league championship roster. The Brass would toy with the idea of moving Smith to second and putting Rose at third. But Pete took a strong interest in Mike from day one. And he insisted that the Gold Glover keep his third base status. And he settled in at first base. Rose often compares Smitty to his former teammate Joe Morgan. And he proclaimed to be the best player in the game. Pete had the inane ability to command the media attention that once showered Schmitty and all of his insecurities. In a game reminiscent of the 1976 classic at Wrigley that saw Mike hit four bombs in an 18-16 win, the Cubs and Phillies once again played an explosive 23-22 10-inning slugfest at Wrigley on May 17, 1979. After that game, they raced to the top of the NLE standings. In July, following a stretch of 12 home runs in 18 games, Schmidt finds himself ahead of the Roger Maris 61 home run record as he and slugger Dave Kingman battled all year for the NL home run title. Although he ultimately fell short of the Maris mark as well as Kingman's total, he wound up with 45 home runs and won his fourth Gold Club award. The team, however, dealt with a slew of injuries in 1979 and they would stumble to an 84-78 record good enough for a fourth place in the NLEs. On August 31st, the club fired manager Danny Ozark and replaced him with minor league director Dallas Green. And... I think this is where we're going to break this week, C-Mets. When I come back... We'll continue the story of Michael Jack Schmidt as the Phillies head into the 1980 season with high expectations as usual. But there are whispers around the league, as well as amongst the hardcore Philadelphia fan base, whether Michael Jack and his band of future Hall of Fame uh, supporting class guys can get this job done. So look, don't go anywhere. Let me hydrate. Think about my course in this Mike Schmidt story arc for acts two and three of his baseball career as our BKP time travel choo choo rolls on here with Show 100. Please support the grassroots sponsor that supports a grassroots baseball show, Laparose Hand Cleaners. Buy one, get one deal. Tell them all about the Pod Squatch. BRB, you freaks.
2: Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, Gage Guillen, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hand Cleaners, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand clean. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet, specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy food or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fish and hand cleaner get rid of bait pump, the fish hand cleaner, clean cleaner removes the spicy b- around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all VKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards K Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, There's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to CrawfishHandCleaner.com, or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, Get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's CrawfishHandCleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing.
0: Here's the stretch by Robinson. The 3 0 pitch. Playing a long drive! There it is! Number 500! The career 500th home run for Michael Jack Smith! And the Phillies have regained the lead at Pittsburgh 8 6. And the Phillies dug out, come swarming out to whole place. What a time, what a time to pick for number 500. The whole dugout's out there. You don't see Smith get very emotional going around the bases on a home run. He took, jumped on second with both feet. He banged his fist high around third base. The whole bullpen now is coming up. That is a storybook 500 home run, no doubt about it. You couldn't hit it in a better spot. Two outs, down to the last out. After coughing up a five nothing lead, Michael Jack has just hit career 500. And even though the 23,000 plus here at Three Rivers Stadium are disappointed at their home team, they give Mike Schmidt a standing ovation. He had a green light on a 3-0 pitch, and he didn't miss it. Number 500 for Michael Jack and the Phillies' lead 8-6. It was a fastball hurry, and it was probably on the inside, uh, from the middle of the plate inside, and it was a home run at the crack of the bat. Nobody had to wonder about that one. Unbelievable.
1: Jack Schmidt bio, arguably the greatest all around third baseman to ever played a game. We covered his childhood growing up in Dayton, Ohio. The Schmidts were an entrepreneurial family, I guess you would call it, as they ran the Phillips Aquatic Center in North Dayton, as well as a little burger stand on the complex called Jack's after his father. And I feel like I should mention that Mike's father was always called Jack or Smitty. And Mike was always called Schmitty by friends and family, as long as he can remember. Hall of Fame Phillies broadcaster in TV and radio, Harry Callis, coined him Michael Jack Schmidt, as he would say his name usually after he would hit one of his majestic dongs into the left field stands. At Callis's funeral, Michael Jack Schmidt tipped his proverbial cat to Harry for giving him the indelible brand. Mikey excels in baseball and basketball. He plays baseball for OU, and he dominates the diamond for four years. The Phillies scout, Tony Lucadella, he realizes the young switch hitter uh, shortstop's potential, and Philly snatches him at number 30 in the draft, just one pick behind his AL hot corner stud counterpart, George Brett. And slowly but surely, the core of the Phillies' youngsters, that included Mike, Larry Boa, Bob Bone, Greg Leszczynski, they begin to mature as a team and individually. And the Phillies are enjoying regular season success, but they keep coming up short to the big wreck machine of Cincinnati and the Dodgers in the postseason. And as the face of the organization, Schmidty is constantly blamed for, by the local press and fans as the reason why the Phillies always come up short. But now... The Phillies have Pete Rose on the team, and he has taken a lot of the scrutiny and the weight off of Schmidt's shoulders with his sheer personality. And with the clubhouse shakeup, everything goes the Phillies' way in 1980. Schmidt hits 300 for the most part of the year. He breaks out 137 hits. He clobbers 48 home runs, won his first NL MVP, won a World Series ring, won the World Series MVP award finally the Phillies had proven they can go the distance the team at Mike they start off strong in May Schmidt smashes 12 home runs powering filthy to a 17 to nine record and just a game behind the defending world champion Pittsburgh Pirates he was batting over 300 till the end of May and his average dipped below 300 to stay on a you know it dip below 300 to stay on June 2nd his on base percentage, on the other hand, it never dipped below 350 that year, and he finished with a 380 OBP and a one point zero zero four OPS that set the NL standard. However, nursing a pulled muscle caused him to miss the Midsummer Classic. He slumped in June and July, and the Phil sank to three games behind Pittsburgh on August first. From the second of August on. They begin to pick up the pace, and by the month's end, they are merely a half game back. With the NLEs pending on the line, Schmidt heats up down the stretch, the Pirates fade, the Expos found themselves barely ahead of Philly, and in a winner-take-all series matchup in Montreal, Schmidt homered and knocked in both runs in a 2-1 victory in Game 1, and hit an 11th inning 2 run blast to propel Filthy back into the post. Now, that 1980 LCS is an absolute must-see classic. Get on your YouTube, check it out. The Phillies and Astros would battle into extra innings in the final four games of the best-of-five-game matchup. Schmidt's postseason woes continue as he struggles the whole series versus Nolan Ryan in the Strohs' rotation. And even without Mike's production, The Phillies win the NLCS and they're headed to their first World Series appearance in 30 years. So, I covered the 1980 World Series in a couple of shows in the collection. Most notably on the George Brett bio and the Colvin Stadium pod. If you'd like to go in depth on that series, I suggest you check those shows out in my Vault of Archives. And did I mention that my Vault of Archives now has 100 shows in it? Thank you, thank you. But, Schmidt... More than redeemed to his poor play in league championship series play. By taking the Kansas City Royals apart, he got at least one hit in every single game. Going 8 for 21, driving in 7, scoring 6. Game 6, he had a two-run blast to open the game. I'm sorry, that's game 5. And in game 6, his single in the third knocked in two runs. And that was all Carlton would need as the Bills won 4-1 to clinch the city's first Phillies championship ever.
0: Well hit. Center field. Otis is going back. Near the warning track. It is a home run. Two-nothing Phillies. are some Philly fans here, but right now, a little quiet here at Royal Stadium as Mike Schmidt gets his second home run of this series and the Phillies lead 2-0. nothing. It's how Mike Schmidt talked about moving off the plate so he could extend those arms more. And the first pitch to him was inside. They tried to jam him, he laid off, and then they went away, and Schmidt really extended the
1: arms. At the championship parade, a reflective Schmidt offered... An olive branch to the fans that had, you know, booed him through the years. Telling the fans, take this championship and savor it, Philadelphia, because you all deserve it. When the dust of the 1980 season had settled, Michael Jack was the unanimous winner of the NL MVP. And his 48 home runs broke the record for home runs by a third baseman that was previously set by Braves icon Eddie Matthews. A fitting final chapter. For a storybook season. Expectations were high again in 1981 as the Phillies broke camp with virtually the same team as the championship season before, uh, with the exception of Gabe Matthews replacing Lazinski in left field. Both Schmidt and Filthy Phil- Phil- got up to a strong start, and the team stood atop the NL East by a game and a half when play was halted by the player strike on June 10th. Michael Jack was hitting 284 with 14 big flies. 41 RBIs. The All-Star Game on August 9th marked the return of baseball, and Schmidt drops two-run dong on Brewer's closer Raleigh Finger's lips to give the National League a 5-4 victory.
0: Straight away, center field. Winfield is going back, back, way back. He'll not get this one.
1: Short of a playoff berth on the strength of the first-half record, the Phillies sputtered as a team once play resumed. Smitty, however, was a beast. He hit three fifty-seven with 17 home runs, 50 RBIs, and 50 games. And uh, that was in the second half. When the season had ended, the Phillies took on the Montreal Expos in the first-ever NLDS. And lost to the Spohs in five games in which Mike went four for 16 with a dung. And while the 1980 season was a person of success for Schmitty, he probably performed even better in the 81 strike short season. His 316 batting average was a career high. His 435 OVP, 31 dingers, and 91 ribs paced the National League. He earned a sixth straight Gold Glove Award and won his second NL MVP. In retrospect, Mike credits Pete Rose for changing the culture of the franchise and Dallas Green for his leadership qualities, for not only the success of the team, but also his career personally. Going into the 1982 season, Dallas was replaced by Pat Corrales, And Green would emigrate to the Cubs, as we spoke about last week on the Sandberg Show. Mike signed a six-year deal with the club for $10 million through 1987. $10 million in 1982 was equivalent to $31.8 million in 2023. And Schmitty struggled with a ribcage pull all year. But he still put up solid numbers. Unfortunately, the team finished 89-73, three games short of the NL East pennant. The Phillies sensing that the window of the future was going to close, that they didn't adjust. They go all in to take one more stab at the championship. So in 1983, they pick up two more former parts in the Big Red Machine. They sign Joe Morgan and Tony Perez as free agents. And instead of the whiz Kids of 1950... The media lovingly called them the Wheeze Kids. They had a stout lineup with Rhodes, Morgan, Schmidt, Perez, a fantastic ace in Carlton. And despite high expectations, they started slow. And with the team at first place with a 43-42 and 42 record, Corrales was fired as the skipper. Replaced with GM Paul Owens after a team meeting in which Schmidt urged his veteran core of teammates to block out the noise and not get distracted. Schmidt would end the season with a six-home-run title, and Filthy reels off an 11-game winning streak in late September as they clinched the pennant with a 90-72 record. In the NLCS, they punked the defending world champion Dodgers in four games, behind Gary Matthews' MVP performance and Lefty Carlton's two wins and a .66 ERA. Schmidt also had a great series, batting .467 with a 1.329 OPS, and for the second time in three seasons, the Phillies were back in the dance, this time against the American League champion Baltimore Orioles. The I-95 World Series, as it was dubbed, was a disaster for Mike. He went for 1-20 for in the series, and was never a factor, as the Orioles took home the chip in five games. A most disappointing end to an otherwise successful season. And, boy, did he struggle the head World Series against Orioles pitching. As a lifelong fan of my beloved Birds, I just remember the series being billed as this matchup between two of baseball's most prominent power hitters, Schmidt and Orioles first baseman Eddie Murray. And, Folks, they were both horrific. Both of them were pressing the deeper the series got. Now, Eddie finally broke out in the series clinching game with two bombs. But Michael Jack never got out of first gear. And in a series that featured future Hall of Famers Tony Perez, Joe Morgan, Steve Carlton, Pete Rose, Mike Schmidt, Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, Jim Palmer, as well as Orioles manager Earl Weaver, it was Baltimore Orioles catcher Rick Dempsey and his five extra base hits in the five-game series that would win World Series MVP. As the Orioles painted most of their damage in that series from the bottom of their light-hitting lineup of Todd Cruz, Rich Dower, and Rick Dempsey. Or the three amigos, as they recorded that year in the Baltimore Press. After the series, Phillies released Bros and Morgan. They sold Tony Perez to Montreal. During the 1983 season, Schmidt was named to the club's centennial team and he was named the greatest Phillies player in club history, beating Carlton by a mere 5,000 votes. In 1984, the club begins a string of disappointing seasons and Schmidt would never see the post again. At this time in his career, the 34-year-old superstar is enjoying mentoring the young Phils coming up and leading by example. He is once again the NL home run king with 36 blasts for the 7th time in his career. He also led the league in RBIs with 106 for the 3rd time at his 919 OPS and paced the league. That was the 4th time he accomplished that feat. And Schmidt begins the 1985 campaign poorly. And in late May, the Phillies call up Rick shoe to play third base. And they move Mike to first. And for the rest of the season, that's where he remained. In his role as the team captain, Schmidt would have these uh, yearly state of the Phillies address. He would conduct them on the first game of spring training. So in 1986, camp, Schmidt told the writers he was ready to move back to third base and Vaughn Hayes could take over first. So, that's pretty much what happened. In 1986, the Phils had an eclectic mix of young and old on their roster, led by Mike, who was now 36, and Lefty, who was now 41. The two veteran Hall of Famers would head in two different directions, as Carlton was released after inheriting a 6.18 ERA in 16 starts. Schmidt hit 290. Wins his final home run in RBI crowns with his 37 dongs and 119 ribs, his final gold glove ward, as well as one more NL MVP to add to a spectacular resume. His third, which was a record at that time until Barry Bonds came on the scene. The Phillies finished with a winning record, but well behind the eventual world champion New York Mets. and an, an end of the preseason presser, Uh, I'm sorry, the season presser. Schmidt opines that he thinks he can play one more year and then retire to spend time with his family. But he also admitted that he would consider playing longer if his knees could hold up and his family approved. So Schmidt enters the 1980 season with 495 home runs, which at that time was the 14th most in the game. He had hit numbers uh, 100, 200, 300, and 400 on the road, and number 500 would be no different. On August, uh, April 18, 1987, with the Phillies trailing Pittsburgh 6 to 5 in the eighth at Three Rivers Stadium, Schmidt walks to the disc sitting on 499, staring at a bucko's pitcher Don Robinson. With the count at 3 and 0, Schmidt skates the green light. He smashes a meatball, get me over fastball and he deposited into the left field stands. And with that dog, Michael Jack had hit five run home runs and the fewest career at-bats behind only Babe Ruth, Harmon killerbrill and Mickey Mantle. Overall, it was another better fucking year at the Schmidt household, but with the team losing more than they won, he begins to express frustration with the Phillies organization, the stadium, the minor league farm, he signs a two year deal with the club with only the first year guaranteed. The Phillies held an option for nineteen ninety nine. Unfortunately, the House of Cards collapsed as the Phillies hit rock bottom, last place in the NLEs for the first time since Schmidt was a rookie. Mike dealt with nagging injuries all season. His triple crown stats were his lowest since his rookie year. And on august twelfth, he pulls himself from the game with a season ending rotator cup injury. After having surgery in the offseason to prepare the soldier, uh, shoulder, Mike had high hopes of the, for the 1989 season. However, the Phillies declined his option and offered him less money than he was expecting. So, for the first time in his life, Michael Jack Schmidt is a free agent. But other than the Philly only Phillies, only the Yankees, Dodgers, and Reds had any real interest in him. And preferring to end his career filthy, he signs a one-year deal with Phillies. He slumped in April and May, and in San Francisco at the stick, he misplayed a routine ground ball that would have ended the inning, leading to four unearned runs. When the next batter hit a grand slam, the proud and embarrassed Schmidt remembers standing at third base, saying to himself, It's time to hang him up, fella. With a two oh three average and just six home runs, twenty eight RBIs and forty two games, he informed the boys he was done. He made the trip to San Diego with the team. And before the May 29th game, Michael Jack Schmidt gave one of the most painful goodbyes ever to Major League Baseball.
0: Some 18 years ago, I left Dayton, Ohio with two very bad knees. And a dream to become a Major League Baseball player. (laughs) (laughs)
1: got <laughs> And man, that is still so painful to listen to. I, I remember listening to the Howard Stern show and they played this clip back in the day, back when, you know, Howard was young and fierce. I, uh, man, oh man, it still gives me douche chills. So following his playing career, Mike does what most sane people do when they get older and they retire. They moved south. He and his wife and two children. They set up camp in Jupiter, Florida. He's now a happy grandfather who often sojourns back to filthy during the season to catch games and participate in special events. And when looking back on his life and career, Michael Jack thinks about that little boy sitting in Crosley Field watching Frank Robinson, Vana Pinson, and dreaming of one day being them. When he was a kid, he had a poster of Pete Rose on his wall. And then he got to play with them. And then they won a World Series together. Smitty knows he is the prime example of making your dreams come true through hard work and perseverance through the ups and the downs of baseball. Of life. During his career, he was, I want to say he was underappreciated by his own media fans, partly due to his high natural skill set level, that could make it seem like he lacked the blue-collar work ethic of, say, a Pete Rose, who didn't have half of Schmidt's God-given abilities, abilities, and he had to constantly work at it. Not that Schmidt could just throw his hat and glove on third base, and he's going to put up huge numbers. He worked hard as anyone in the clubhouse, but bands are ruled by perception 90% of the time. So, ultimately... Comments by Schmitty, played up by the Philly press, they also made him look ungrateful at times, and the local scribes, they took liberties in tearing him down sometimes. But, despite all that, his incredible work ethic, his leadership during the first golden year of years of the Phillies, it inspired fans and ballplayers throughout their territory. One of those kids was future Hall of Famer Mike Piazza, who wanted to be a slugger just like his hero. Michael. Jack Schmidt had achieved all of his baseball dreams with one team. And happily for all, he regained any favor with the Phillies faithful with his 1995 Hall of Fame induction. He is proud to call Philadelphia his city, and the fans there are proud to consider him their very own Phillies sports legend. Not too bad for a kid out of Dayton, Ohio, With two bad knees and a dream. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to shut it down this week. So, look, I really want to thank you guys for riding with me for these first 100 shows. It means a lot to me. And you truly are the best audience a podcast host could ask for. I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of Michael Jack Smith to our collection of ballplayers. And I promise, freaks, I'll try to be better next week. Before we twist this up like tickers the Evers the chance for a game-ending tailor-made DP, let's take a look at those, oh, so lovely, Michael Jack Schmidt Hall of Fame stats. Okay, let's see what we got here. Let's get those stats pulled up in our Google machine here. What do we have? This is going to be fun. Michael Jack Schmidt And right off the bat, that's just one hell of a masculine name there, right? Kudos to parents Jack and Lois for having some foresight foresight there. Okay, Michael Jack Schmidt, born September 27th, 1949, so tomorrow, the day after this bio is released into the baseball universe, Mike will be celebrating his 74th birthday. So happy birthday, Schmidt!y It was an honor watching you play this game. As a kid, you were a driving force of my love for baseball, and I'm proud to now have you in our collection, and I'm proud to have a platform to tell your story. Drafted by the Phillies in the second round with the 30th pick in the 1971 Baseball Amateur Draft. 18 year baseball career, all with the Phillies. Mostly played third base, but did some work at first late in his career. A career 106.8 WAR which is 25th highest, wins above replacement, and tied with Lefty grounds. He's sandwiched between Napoleon Lazaway at 24 and Greg Maddox at 26. He has the highest ward third base in the game's history, ahead of Wade Boggs, George Brett, Eddie Matthews, and Adrian Beltre to round out the top five. 10,062 play appearances, 1,506 runs, 73rd most in the game's history. 2,234 hits, 15th most by a third baseman. Adrian Beltre is the only third baseman to had 3,000 hits at that position. 408 doubles, 548 big flies, which is 16th all-time. That's kind of nestled between a pair of Red Sox and Manny Ramirez at 555, and David Ortiz with 541. His 516 dongs, the hot corner of the most by any third baseman in Major League Baseball history. 1,595 RBI tied with who else but George Brett for the 38th most of the game. Only Adrian Beltre has more ribs at third. 1,707 to 1,502. 1,507 walks, the 18th most ever. However, he had 1,883 strikeouts, the 15th most ever. 174 stolen bases, 92 times caught, 4,404 total bases, my favorite offensive stat. And those 4,400 total bases is the 57th most in MLB history. Three-time most valuable player, 1986, 1981, 1980. Six Silver Slugger Awards, 12 Time All Star, 10 Gold Glove Awards, 5 Time Player of the Month, 6 Time Player of the Week, 450 double plays, turned third base, 5th most in baseball history. He finished with a 267, 380, 527 slash, 908 OPS, and a 148 OPS plus. My God, that's as dominant as they come on both sides of the rock, right? Gentlemen, boys, and girls, seamen of all ages, this is the story of Michael Jack Smith. And again, thank you so much for joining me for this now 160 years of baseball we have covered here, at BKB. During the first 100 shows dropped in the past 19 months, I think the OGs who have followed me for the last seven years or so know I don't miss deadlines. I don't take vacations. I grew up watching Calvert King Jr. I don't believe in taking off. And I'm committed. I have missed one week during this, and that was because I had a hernia surgery. And I missed that week under protest. I appreciate anyone who takes time out of their day to listen to me pontificate the seams. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And don't go anywhere. I'm just getting started. I I do this 24-7, 365. I don't do it for the money. I don't do it for the notoriety. I do it for the genuine love of baseball and the stories that come along with it. I do it because we all have a God-given gift. I'm a creative type and artist. Every week I go on the air with a blank audio canvas and I go to work. Maybe they're not always home runs. Maybe sometimes I stutter or make an error in in an hour of talking. But every week, I come looking for my ABs, looking to get better, honing my craft. I give you everything I got because this audience deserves it. So, before I bend baseball space and time, jump through these interdimensional wormholes and get you back to your loved ones waiting for you at Terrapin Station, What's a trip to Filthy without a cheesesteak? So my boy Den told me the best cheesesteaks is actually in Medford, New Jersey at a joint called Donkey. So let's shoot there real quick before I get you home. My treat. I will never charge you for this precious baseball content. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscriptions. Information is power. And I want all of you to have tangible baseball power. That shouldn't cost you anything as far as I'm concerned. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Johnny Bench, baby. And with the Michael Jack Schmidt bio getting smaller and smaller in my rear view mirror, I turn my attention back to I Never Say Die Baseball Hydra, reach into my kimono, grab my katana, and I chop. The Head Off That Beast Only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place Next week We'll take a deep dive into the waters of Lake Minnetonka And see what you can learn about the hitting guru and Hall of Famer Rodney Klein Carrill. Dude was one of my first favorite baseball players as a kid I'm chomping at the bit to do the work And bring you a story But look, y'all know the deal That's another story or another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. You can find Backwards K-Pod on all platforms. Please share with your seamhead buddies. Please remember to rate and review as you see fit. I ain't scared. If you're in Denver, Colorado, or you're planning a trip there, please check out my boys Bruce and Danny at the National Ballpark Museum out on Blake Street. Just a long fly ball from Coors Field. Those young guys, you know, they like to play BKP over the loudspeakers as you walk through and look at their exhibits. So, it's all love, baby. Tell them the snake sent you. Let's see. What else? YouTube channel, Backwards K Pod. Please subscribe. Twitter handle is back underscore K underscore podcast. And our private Facebook group page is the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Okay. I think that's it. I know you guys are probably getting sick of hearing my voice. I'm going to make like a baby and head out. Nah, wah, 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 wah. I think I'll accomplish my goals. Vinny, Vinny, but see, I came, I saw, I conquered. Another backwards K in the books. Let's get this BKP time travel to back to Terrapin. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored and unproductive AF, by all means... Take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shea Hillenberry told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year. You go to hell, Andy Patton. I love you guys. Thank you for helping me live out my dream. I'm truly humbled. I'm throwing up my Gunnar Hendersons right now, folks. Deuces. See you next week with Karoo, freaks. Peace.